Please note the storyteller, Murder Most Foul, contains descriptions of a crime scene and injuries that some people may find disturbing. Previously on The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul. A mother fears the worst for her 22-year-old daughter. Kev said that she's not here, and I just went, just didn't emote, and I just knew something happened to her. I just knew something had happened to her then. Police go to Melanie Sturton's home in the upmarket west end of Aberdeen and make a gruesome discovery. When the police officers arrived, they tried to open the door into her flat, and when they had opened the door, they had found what appeared to be a body behind the door. Concealed under a duvet, forensics reveal the shock of what they uncover. We went in, expecting this perhaps not to be all that serious, and taking one look just from the doorway and realising that really this was something much, much worse. There was a noticeable sort of draw of breath at the horrific nature of the throat injuries because at that point it still wasn't necessarily obvious what we were dealing with. And it was only in turning her over and seeing particularly the, the gaping injuries to her throat just what we were dealing with. This wasn't a typical murder and almost as shocking as the injuries inflicted was the identity of who wielded the knife. I'm Isla Traquere, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case, most importantly, the killer, to see if I can finally get some answers and discover the truth behind this murder most foul. This is The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere. October 11th, 1999-9.30pm. A team have gathered outside 188 Great Western Road in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. The site of scene of crime tape, police officers and forensics in white suits was out of place in this nice part of what is a very affluent city due to the oil industry. Nicknamed the Granite City, or more romantically, the Silver City, Anyone who has been can see why. Unlike the red brick, sandstone or pebble dashing used all over the UK, the core of Aberdeen was built using the light grey granite quarried nearby. On sunny days, the effect is quite striking as the high mica content glistens, but on the more common, dull, wet days, the stones lose their magic. It was behind the large granite stones of one of these impressive buildings that the body of Melanie Sturton lay for three days before being discovered. As a 19-year-old journalist working for the Press and Journal newspaper, I was sent to the scene, not knowing what horrors lay behind the black glossy door. 20 years on, I return. It's a beautiful sunny day and I'm walking along Great Western Road 
quite different conditions to the 9th of October in 1999. And right this second, I am coming up to standing directly outside the house where Melanie was murdered all those years ago, number 188, but they've put uh, the name Bewley above the door, perhaps to disguise what uh, was um, associated with this building and that number on the street. It's a very busy street and the positioning of the lights means that traffic often has to stop right here. And it's where I've driven many a time and been stopped right outside that house, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you tend to think about it so much when you come along this road. But yeah, it's interesting coming back here. I remember being stood on the opposite side of the street looking across and um, wondering what was going on and what they'd found. And then obviously as the story unfolded, learning more and more. I am Sandy Kelman. I'm a retired Detective Chief Inspector. I was the Senior Investigating Officer during this murder inquiry. I'd been a police officer for about 20 years. Um, crimes, um, we had, like any sort of city about that size, we had a lot of thefts, housebreaking, things like that. But at the same time, we did have a transient population with the oil industry, and oil was part of that. Prostitution was part of that. We had you know, a few murders a year, but the majority of murders, from memory, they were mainly sort of domestic-type murders where the perpetrator um, knew the victim, some sort of form, whether related or, or some sort of other connection. And that generally was most of the murders we dealt with. Uh, my name's Chris Gannicliffe, so I'm a forensic scientist and specifically a biologist. There's always a lot of drugs-related deaths and, and unexplained suspicious deaths like that. Uh, the routine homicides would be the same as they are now uh, in the sense that they're often vulnerable victims living chaotic lives, uh, drug dependent, alcohol dependent. It is such an unusual case in the sense of what you normally deal with and so that's the thing that does strike you looking back at this. It is, it is different from, from many of us, not just because it's such violence but it's just the horrific nature of somebody who's, who's vulnerable and exploited. I'm James Henderson Kerr-Greve. At the time of Melanie, I'd been the senior in Aberdeen for about 10 years. It was My title was Senior Lecturer in Forensic uh, Pathology. Great Western Road was quite a nice part of Aberdeen. I suppose by then they were doing what had happened uh, here, which was to make some of these what had obviously been um, substantial granite properties of, you know, the upper middle class into, you know, changing their use and I suppose many of them would have been made into flats or created uh, into beds at accommodation like this of homes of multiple occupancy as they were then. On the ground floor, as you entered into the vestibule, on your left was a, was a, a door to a flat unrelated to this inquiry and then Beyond there were two doors, both of which related to Melanie's property. So rather than having one door entry into her flat, she had two secure doors. One of those was into her bedroom, and one of those was a separate one going into a living room slash kitchen. So she had two doors. So if she wanted to move between her bedroom and her living room, she would have to come into the common lobby and then use a key to get into her living room. So it's a slightly odd arrangement. And then the arrangement on the, on the upstairs flats was rather, rather similar in the sense that there was a communal shower bathroom for everybody uh, within there and another two flats. So as you, as you open the door, uh, the door open to the right, 
what you've got is Natalie's body immediately in front of you behind the door uh, and it was a living room combined kitchenette if you like so at the the far right corner was this kitchenette area immediately to the left as you stood in the doorway facing into the room beyond Melanie's body was a settee uh, which then had some significance in terms of the assault as it later emerged relative signs of a disturbance insofar as you know there's some things knocked over on the table some glass showered on the floor uh, and then other sort of fairly innocuous signs of just normal activity you know cups and mugs on cigarette stubs on the on the table and such like uh, which then you have to start to start trying to build in are they a priority maybe someone's been there socially before the assault and therefore are they of interest so what do we have to be looking at those later on and, and so on? You've explained that her body was wrapped in this duvet. Was she face down or...? When you pull up the duvet from over her back, um, that, that half of the duvet that's flapped over her back, then of course uh, you, you can see um, the back of her body um, lying there with her head uh, up uh, about the door uh, and her head is into what would be the fold of the duvet that allowed it to be under her and then over the top of her. Um, you can certainly uh, see that her hands are, are, are sort of up somewhere about her head. Um, her, her right, her left leg uh, rather, is extended, um, you know, just lying out from her body and her, her right leg is sort of bent up uh, to the side. Um, she's wearing, she's wearing um, pyjamas, the, the trousers of which are just shorts, and, and they're in position. The top seems to have been moved upwards to expose her back, the skin of her back. Um, in this occasion, uh, we felt it prudent to move the body away from where it lay so that we could get a, a, a better view of, um, of the injuries, which were not visible on her back as she lay there. Then we had an, ex uh, an opportunity to have a, f a first uh, view of the injuries and they were significant, um, severe injuries um, and multiple, predominantly around uh, her neck with a few on her head and also a stab wound on the left side of her chest. These were the main injuries lots of other ones that we would describe in due course. At that point, we're absolutely confident. There's no question this is a homicide. There's indications that she has been attacked about the neck on more than one slice of the knife, um, and that has caused horrific uh, injuries to the neck. It wouldn't have taken much more to sever the neck, so that tells you um, how bad it was. While the forensic team continued their painstaking examination of the scene throughout the night, Melanie's mother, Susan Patrick, and her husband, Paul, are stranded in Spain with their five-year-old son, still unaware of what has happened. And when they do find out, they're faced with organising flights home, insurance company demands, and what turns out to be a less than pleasant welcome off the plane. For those of you not attuned to the Scots tongue, a reminder, Ken means K-N-O-W and fit means what. It wasn't until three o'clock in the morning um, that we got this call for the sergeant and said that, um, said that a body had been found, but I couldn't listen. And then um, 
I can't mind saying, it's a stupid thing to say. I says, so what do we do now? I says, I mean, really, you come home. <laughs> you just didn't know what to, what to do or what to say. And then um, Paul had gone to see the rep. I'd love to know whatever happened to this holiday rep because it was her first job as a holiday rep. So we was doing it in the morning, you know, so we've been up all night trying to Susan's just gone, lying in the corner, you know, darling. So I had to go at this lassie. I actually felt sorry for the woman because she's got some old guy who got mugged at night. <laughs> and she's trying to deal with this one. And some other guy was getting aggression and I thought, I just want to fly home. And then she put me in touch with the holiday insurance. And then she said, we need a copy of the death certificate. I said, you're going to get a death certificate if you don't give me a flight home. I said, look, it's another bit funny. Phone grant in police. So we had to get it arranged. So we'd only been there like the Sunday. And this was a Monday. But we couldn't get the, the flight back, I think, until later Tuesday. And um, we had to try and make no difference to Darren um, and go with this. I remember this big bleeding whale thing in the water, but a six feet whale, and we had to go and play with this. To distract yeah, Darren just, oh, and for you to get through this. I remember we were on the beach, but you just had to kind of concentrate and concentrate, but we were never hearing anything. And you just had to wait to see what the reps did. And I remember they went to Luton. Um, we had to go to Luton first. And then when we got to Luton, they said, oh, you're not on here. And I thought, just let me on that plane. Had the airline been warned that yeah. what was happening yeah. and you yeah. needed to get home? I needed to get home. And then when we got to Glasgow, oh, my God. And then the police came on and we had to go, <laughs> we got escorted off the plane. Was, oh, my God. But, um, and still this time, we didn't know what had happened. When we flew into Glasgow, the guy turned up and says, we're looking for us. Can you make it as known? Right, so put a hand up. Right, and we still didn't know what was going on. And then you get some guy in for the serious crime squad, two guys in my heckler rifles. We're on a holiday flight from Spain, and you know, mm -hmm. and says, Are you such and such? And she was giving it, I'm from something from the serious crime squad. And we just looked at each other and burst out laughing, you know. And I thought, No, he says, What's the matter? I'm not trying to be funny. What do you think I'm going like? So we got taken into this room. I said, oh, here you my bags. No, no, we'll get them for you. I said, they've got the bags. And so we're like, what's going on? And the wife said, I'll give it. She was nice. And she's like, I can't tell. I'm not allowed to tell you anything. I don't know what's going on myself. We just told to get hoodies. All right, and I said, a bit overkill with the guns, you know? And, uh, and then, uh, well, Dad, I thought it was great. You know, five-year-old. Hey, look at this. He Did he have any idea what had happened at that point? I never told him. Uh, that's one thing I'm now going to have to do again. And then the woman says, oh, how are you getting home? I says, oh, my car was in Linwood. And she went away and she came back. And I said, your car's in Aberdeen. I said, how could how is my car in Aberdeen? I says, it was lifted this morning. So they went and got your car? Yeah. I thought, this is good. So were they forensically searching? So it's a car. Before Melanie's family were informed she'd been murdered, the spotlight was already on them. Melanie's 24-year-old brother Kevin was questioned by police overnight while they were escorted from Glasgow Airport back home to the northeast. It was a long drive. And then when I got to the police station, I got to speak to Kevin. And that's when he said, I says, 
awesome. And he says it wasn't it wasn't normal. It was murder, but nobody had ever told me that. And there's mm -hmm. still all oh, the police up the road would never ever say mm -hmm. they would never say. But then again, that's because, like in the films, it's um, the closest to the families suspected first. It was a stepdad and a brother, so you just it's automatically thing. And I knew nothing that was rubbish, but I suppose that's why they just did speak about it. Mm -hmm. They thought it was us, but that was horrific even to think that. They interviewed Susan in the house. I was taken to Aberdeen. Right? There's two guys I never met before. Right? And and were you in an interview room at this point with the tape recorder? And, uh -huh, and the film and all the rest of it. You get the good cop, bad cop routine. Mm. Right? And the first guy, he comes in and says, look, these questions are standard. Mm -hmm. This is this is a standard for each scenario. Mm -hmm. I says, that is, you know. And then I got the, were you shagging your daughter? And I goes, pardon? I says, we've got to ask these questions. And I goes, uh, uh, can I even mind it? Yeah, I says, listen, pal, ask me that again. I'm going to punch your head in. Mm -hmm. Right? Another man said, look. Calm down. But you'd just been asked if you're having a sexual yeah. relationship with your stepdaughter, yeah. yeah. And then I says to her, another man, you might not be any come back. That's another guy come in. I says, I, I appreciate you have questions to ask, but be nice about it, eh? And I was over that desk. Did they charge you for, for that? No, they took me aside and said, you're not allowed to do that. I says, I'm not going back in. Did they treat Kevin in the same way? I don't know, because Kevin's never, ever spoken. He's never told you? Never. But he was kept in the first night? Uh-huh. He was just, we were here, and then he was away, and he's never, ever, but never asked him, never pushed it to him, because that was his sister. The majority of murders, the victim knew the perpetrator, and it sometimes, and quite frequently, it's a family member. So, despite the fact that... Um, the family, Susan and Paul Patrick, had gone on holiday. They'd gone holiday, I think, on the Saturday morning or Saturday lunchtime. And the last sighting I think we had of Melanie was the day before, the Friday. So we couldn't totally eliminate all family members until we actually ascertained what their movements were on the days from the Friday onwards. So we, as part of the inquiry, had to have some lines of inquiry which involved looking at all the family, ascertaining their movements and totally eliminating from the inquiry to our satisfaction. And that's difficult for a family um, and it's difficult um, and it has to be dealt with very tactfully but at the same time it has to be done. I kept saying yeah, if you think any of us did it, I said, you're wrong, because you get DNA and everything taken, and you think, oh, God. But that's how it, you can on TV, it says. But it wasn't a case like that, because I knew, they knew, kind of, yeah. it was just, but you have to go through all this process and process and upsetting. Yeah. While the family continue to be questioned, forensics are working round the clock at Melanie's home trying to determine her final moments. The clues that they found paint a terrifying picture. I sat down with Dr James Grieve, the pathologist, and forensic scientist Chris Gannicliffe to go over their findings. You can see there from your notes, your, your initial impression is that um, 
this has been a violent attack and yeah. her neck has been cut. The important ones that, that, that I uh, recorded in my notes at the Locus was an apparent stab wound in the left side of the, of the chest, about one and a half centimetres. An incised wound with a flap on the left shoulder, which we spoke about. Multiple incisions in the anterior aspect of the neck, um, typically cutthroat, as you would call it. And then uh, there are further wounds, um, left thumb and some other potentially defence injuries. She has an abrasion, essentially a blunt force injury, on the back of her head within the hair. Um, and, uh, you know, as a, as a sort of a uh, final comment, ERSA found face down in blood with much blood smeared in the anterior aspect of the body. The clothes are heavily blood stained anteriorly, so that's on the front. What you had was sort of two key areas. You had the settee, which was, had a throw on it, and there was a heavy blood staining on the settee. And some scatter cushions on the, on the settee as well. There were stab cuts to the scatter cushions, to the, the settee base cushion, seat base cushion as well. In addition, the duvet, which was thrown on Melanie, that had a stab cut as well. And then what you had in the area where she was found behind the door, had a lot of low-level blood smearing. So it obviously been a very active struggle while she was low down on the ground and blood uh, and bleeding freely. It was clear from the nature of her throat injury that that was so significant and the blood loss would have been so great from it that you would see it elsewhere had that been sustained elsewhere in the room. So that clearly had been sustained when she was down within the duvet, uh, and so very much the, the last in the sequence of events. There was a slash cut to the wallpaper as if it was maybe the knife in, a, in one, of the, one of the blows had slashed against the wallpaper. There were cast off blood stains on the wallpaper. And what those are, are where you have a weapon that's wet with blood and you fling it backwards on a backstroke, the blood is flung off it, so you get a sequence of blood spots on the wall. So that was clearly in the, in the assault phase. As the knife is being wielded, it's flinging blood off onto the wall. There was hair adhering to the blood smears on the, on the skirting board where it looked like a head had struck the wall on the skirting board. So the Venus phase of the assault was low, low level and low down, but it looked to have started initially on the settee. We wrote this in the death certificate, and it's very much part of the conclusion of our report, which is a public document, um, that our initial examination at the Locus and then our confirmatory examination in detail at the mortuary tells us that she had incisional wounds or sharp force wounds to the neck and also to the torso. So these are, these are the fatal injuries and very visibly she had um, big incised wounds, so sharp force injuries, slashes if you will, and the, the most severe uh, went from the left side just over the midline uh, across the front and then wound up on the right side of the neck where it was very deep uh, and ended up on the back of the neck um, moving towards the midline. And you, you could see even then that vital structures had, had been uh, cut or incised in the basin, and, and notably the airway and the right side, the carotid artery, which is essentially the, the main artery that leads to the head and neck and to the brain on the right side. There's 
There's clearly one on the left side as well, and there are a couple of smaller ones go up at the back. But the, the, the carotid artery, this, that's, a, that's a very, very important vessel. You could see from the stab cuts that you had on the settee, some of them, the ones to the scatter cushion, the cuts, when you examine them microscopically, they, don't, they were blood-free, they didn't have any traces of blood around them. So what that showed is that the knife is yet to penetrate her. So these are blows that are missing her and it are being inflicted, but a lot of them. And then you had the ones to the seat base, the seat cushion base of the, uh, the uh, sofa, the settee, which had traces of blood around the edges. So clearly at that point, she's probably sustained her chest wounds and now the knife is blood-stained, but it's missing her and striking the seat base. So there's a phase of the assault there when she's on the sofa. Now whether the assailant comes in at that point, we don't know, to gain access. Perhaps they've got a set of keys. She's awoken, she sleeps on the settee. She doesn't sleep in her bedroom. She sleeps on the sofa, apparently. So perhaps the assailant enters with a set of keys and assaults her while she's lying on her bed. Perhaps, alternatively, she encounters her at the doorway and she's pushed back on the, on the settee because that's plausible, it's right near to the door. So this phase of the assault there, and then it seems to have moved onto the floor by the doorway, and then on the, and it's all low-level then. It's all low-level blood smearing, culminating in the throat injury, one would think, because there's, n there's nothing that's going to follow that. That's so catastrophic. You can think of scenarios where, yes, indeed, as Melanie tries to escape from an attack that's maybe started on the sofa, and uh, you know, several of these stab wounds perhaps miss their target, then she finds herself sort of trying to crawl towards the door and to get out, and then finally sustains a lethal injury just at the, the door, and that's where she ends up lying dead. Ironically, Melanie had been sleeping in her main room due to a recent break-in in the building, as she felt safer there than her bedroom. Her stepfather had actually closed the windows shut. Already shy, this made Melanie even more safety conscious. Now she wouldn't have opened it unless it was, I don't know, she wouldn't have opened it unless it was like a voice or something, kind of like, she knew. she knew, she wouldn't have, just, she just wouldn't have done it. So this meant one thing, Melanie must have known her killer and answered the door to let them in. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, the investigation expands as police think they're getting closer to identifying the killer. And we hear from the journalists covering the case alongside me, who were as equally shocked by what we learn. The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>